Hi all, welcome to another episode of our podcast series, Inside Tech Done Deal, where we look at the who, the what, the why of technology deals across the APAC region. Uh, my name is Mia Harrison-Kelf and I am a Senior Associate in the corporate team, specialising in mergers and acquisitions and other strategic transactions with a focus on the tech sector. Uh, before we get started today, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording today and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Uh, I am calling in from the land of the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. Uh, so on today's episode, we are going to focus on joint ventures, alliances and other forms of strategic collaborations. And I am lucky enough to be joined by the excellent Peter Jones and Jay McLaren from our uh, Sydney and Singapore offices, respectively. Um, Peter, can I hand over for a brief intro from you? You can indeed, Mia. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. I am likewise joining you from the Gadigal and Bidjigal uh, areas uh, in terms of those traditional owners' land on which we meet. I'm a partner in our telecommunications, media and technology practice here uh, located in Sydney uh, and as part of that work obviously work very closely with a number of our corporate partners uh, and team working on corporate transactions. Great, I know I've worked with you on many interesting things Peter so I can't <laughs> wait to hear your thoughts today um, and Jamie over to you uh, for a little brief intro. Thanks, Mia. Uh, my name is Jamie McLaren. I'm an M&A partner based in our Singapore office. Um, I work very closely with our TMT team on um, collaboration, joint ventures, tech-driven joint ventures, um, and and the various structures that come with those. So very familiar with the issues that you can you can encounter on those across um, across Asia and Southeast Asia in particular. So back to you, Mia. Thanks, Jamie. Uh, it'll be great to get your insight from uh, the Asia part of our APAC region. Um, so I think maybe just to kick us off, I think when we talk about tech deals, we're often focusing on traditional mergers and acquisitions and equity investments. Um, but I think all of us can agree that uh, we do see a much broader range of transactions and kind of as probably apparent from your introductions, you come at this from from slightly different perspectives, slightly different angles. And I'd just be really interested to hear uh, what you're both seeing uh, in your respective markets. Yeah, maybe if I can kick off, I think that the challenge or the interesting aspects in this area is that we see a full gamut of different types of transaction types and documentation. So when we look at this particular space, we've got obviously the kind of um, all the way through to the kind of the traditional uh, joint venture style um, arrangements, but there is an immense range of different types of commercial opportunities before we even get to that area. So whether that's in kind of uh, outsourcing or complex licensing arrangements, um, partnership type uh, and collaboration agreements or strategic alliance arrangements, as they're often called, profit sharing, uh, unincorporated joint ventures, there is not necessarily a very clear delineation between the, the sorts of transactions that we deal with and what might typically be seen as kind of tech M&A. 
um, which does mean it is an incredibly interesting space to be working on. It also means there's obviously a lot of flexibility and therefore a lot of options for those that are working in this area to try and drive the appropriate structure, the appropriate um, transaction structure for what they want to achieve. Uh, so it, it is certainly one of those areas where we're seeing a broad range, broad gamut of opportunities. But um, Jamie, in Asia, um, it's probably even more so in some respects. Yeah, I think that's right, Peter. So across Asia, we see a whole host of different structures, contractual joint ventures, incorporated joint ventures and everything in between. And there's varying levels of complexity that go with those. Um, you know, just in terms of what we typically see these 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 structures comprising, it's one or both or more joint venture parties providing or receiving services to the JV, and um, whether that be IP or data sharing. Um, and whilst we tend to see a lot of this in uh, a lot of incorporated joint ventures in the tech space, unincorporated joint ventures can provide a bit more fl flexibility from a contractual perspective. Um, particularly where it's a slightly looser collaboration. Um, so. No, I, I completely agree. I think it's it's a space, um, you know, I think tech uh, companies tend to be relatively innovative and, and do follow that through uh, into their structuring as well. So definitely a space where we see a lot of different options. Um, and I think maybe just kind of touching then on the reasons we see that, I guess, what are the the kind of drivers for why people are looking at alternative structures, uh, you know, rather than traditional MA? Uh, Peter, I don't know if you want to kick yeah, us off. I, I, yeah. yeah, very, very happy to jump in, Mia. I mean, I think the the reality is that when you're in the tech space, um, because in many cases, um, if you are looking at engaging in the tech area there is an element of try before you buy or how do we know that we're going to end up in a situation in which we um, ultimately are able to provide an appropriate outcome for all of the interested parties and i think that's part of the history when you look at tech and this is you know on the basis of be working in the space for well over two decades. What what I'd say is I think there is a lot of flexibility. Um, if you also then take, I think, a slight sort of step back and realise what is it that you're ultimately trying to achieve in the tech area, I think particularly in the work that I do, there's a lot of um, work where you are looking at incumbents that have been established in particular sectors for a long time that are trying to find ways in which they can challenge themselves to look at this you know how do we develop and push ourselves into the new quotation marks digital world quotation marks uh, and therefore that drives then a, a sort of a need or a preference to work with um, you know, startups, emerging growth companies, all of which is incredibly important. Um, and particularly, I guess, I've seen it most in the fintech space where there's an element of try before you buy kind of mentality where you try and find ways of working with particular entities. But what's, I, I think, the most important, it comes back to sort of what we spoke about earlier around the the assets that different entities are bringing to the particular transaction. Um, and in many cases, it is the case that you've got 
a, a sort of a, a challenger brand that's coming in there that's got interesting IP, um, that's got a different way of doing things, but it doesn't have the critical mass when it comes to data uh, and, and sort of you know, that, that sort of vast arrays of sort of customer data to drive the next incantation of what they're trying to deliver. And actually, this kind of there is a sweet spot where it actually benefits both parties to look at a new world where you are trying to harness the opportunity around innovation, which is increasingly important, obviously, for obvious reasons, uh, but also not necessarily then putting at risk the mothership in terms of the the historic kind of value of those assets. So. I mean, I think if we sort of look at it in that kind of prism, it, it drives the, the sense of why we're seeing some of the variability in the different types of transactions, because it will always be subject matter specific. It's always going to be driven by the unique propositions of the particular opportunity. Um, and I think that's kind of where I would say it kind of drives that really interesting discussion where what is it that you're ultimately trying to achieve and you have that level of flexibility oftentimes that you don't have in other transactions to get to the end point because there's not necessarily a playbook for it if that makes sense no i completely i completely agree i think um definitely you know we've talked about this previously peter but kind of when uh, the, the kind of benefits of collaboration and kind of alternative structures are that it does give people um, chance to explore different areas, particularly where there are really in demand tech assets that perhaps people haven't been able to, you know, people don't want to sell just yet or people don't want to make the big leap into to kind of, you know, huge investments in that. And, and these arrangements, as you say, really that try before you buy um, aspect is, is, is key. Um, Jamie, what about you from the kind of uh, Asia perspective? Is there kind of anything else that you think you know, in addition to what Peter's um, explained there that are kind of driving these structures that we're seeing? Yeah, I think a lot of those drivers are relevant in Asia as well. Um, I suppose there's maybe two two additional things that apply specifically in Asia. Um, one is, I mean, if I just focus on Southeast Asia for a moment, but it's true more generally across, across Asia, you know, Southeast Asia is 10 different jurisdictions with 10 different legal systems, multiple different languages, and there are various degrees of openness of, of of those jurisdictions and of certain sectors within those jurisdictions um, and as there's the there's a, there's a general trend across the region of opening up to foreign investment particularly tech tech centric investment and <clears throat> peter mentioned fintech fintech is extremely buoyant right now in southeast asia um, but you know the the regulations that apply to fintech are you know regulations that were put in place in the context of banks, um, you know, fin traditional financial services institutions. So it can be quite difficult navigating, you know, modern fintech companies in the context of those older older um, pieces of regulation. Um, it's not always true. A number of countries are actively trying to make themselves more attractive um, from a regulatory perspective, and that's driving huge amounts of investment um, in those countries. Um, digital banks is a real trend in Southeast Asia right now, for example, and a lot of those are joint ventures. <clears throat> so you've got Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines and elsewhere where digital banks are, are really taking off and there's multiple different um, sort of structures being developed for those. Um, and I suppose as well as just that general uh, 
regulatory overlay that applies. There's also foreign direct investment restrictions that will apply in, in, in Asia, um, more so than, than perhaps in other, other jurisdictions. Um, and making sure that you can you can leverage the sort of the local know-how, the international institutional know-how, um, you can reach the right audience in the right way. You know, it can require a bit of a bit of creativity in this part of the world. Great, thanks, Jamie. And maybe just one thing to add as well. I think um, one thing we've seen, uh, you know, say in a, in a market like Australia, but also I'm sure across Southeast Asia as well, Jamie, is, you know, one of the reasons people can be interested in alternative structures is that they might think, well, I can I can enter into an arrangement here in Australia and, and, and kind of collaborate in that market, but retain flexibility and kind of ownership over my IP or, or tech assets um, to explore you know, opportunities in other jurisdictions. And I guess it's one of the the kind of benefits of, of technology assets as opposed to your kind of um, hard physical factories and so on that, that can't be moved. Um, you know, people, I think, appreciate the flexibility um, to kind of explore opportunities and how to kind of leverage their assets in other jurisdictions. So um, definitely a, a kind of relevant aspect there. Um, Okay, so so maybe kind of having, I guess, ticked off kind of what we're seeing and, and why we might be seeing it, I'd also be really interested, and I think um, our listeners would, would too, to kind of understand then what are the, the kind of types of issues that we we see come up and, and how we kind of uh, hoping to to manage some of these as, as we go. Yeah, maybe, let me maybe just wade in on that particular issue, Mia. I think... Um, there are a number of issues, approaches, challenges, whatever the particular vernacular is in terms of defining those um, ultimately points that need to be resolved. I mean, I think ultimately, again, you come back to what are you trying to achieve? So it comes back to the sense of, are we clear around the alignment of interests of what we are looking to do as a you know party a party b that are bringing different perspectives to a particular transaction and how do we do that in a way that is the most effective most uh timely uh as well given oftentimes drivers include the speed to market so um, I mean, I think it's some of those challenges around identifying that alignment of interest. It sounds very, very simple, uh, but actually is challenging uh, and challenging because not necessarily there's sort of a difference of views in terms of ultimately what the end goal is. It's more some of the, the sort of the secondary aspects of trying to find a an outcome. So. I mean, if you look at it, there's often, and we see it again, as Jamie mentioned around fintech. So fintech's a great example because you often have incumbent, large historical um, financial services providers working, and, and, and this is not a criticism, but those organisations typically are subject to a whole range of internal resistance and uh, structural challenges and limitations around how fast they can move. They've also got significant regulatory limitations. They're looking at then going, well, how do we try and unleash the value of looking at, um, you know, some of the, the, the momentum that we could potentially drive through engaging in startup 
kind of emerging growth entities. Um, and oftentimes what you do find is there is a real challenge and the challenge is not necessarily driven through many things other than timing. Because again, emerging growth, fast growth entities are used to moving fast, quick, agile. And when you're dealing in some cases with large iconic uh, financial services entities in particular regions, their ability to move as fast as the partners they would want to be working with is sometimes constrained. So that can actually lead not to sort of tension, but you have to be aware of the nature of that element and deal with it up front and say it is going to take some time to move through those internal approval Channels. I mean, I think, Peter, that that really does hit on a, a kind of theme that has come out in a few of our episodes around, um, you know, the secret, secret to successful transactions is being really clear upfront about what everyone's expectations are. And people often at that kind of early honeymoon stage of, of deals don't necessarily love to get into the to the weeds and have their term sheets clogged up with lots of detail, but but it can be really the the thing that leads to an ultimately successful relationship because um, no one's disappointed by kind of misunderstanding around, as you say, timing or kind of the, the processes involved um, uh, on particular transactions. So, no, no, definitely I think a, a common theme we're seeing. Um, Jamie, any any thoughts from you on kind of common common factors, common issues that, that come up across um, these kind of collaboration transactions? Yeah, for sure. I mean, first of all, I think I agree with everything you and Peter just said. So, so I think those are trends that are relevant here in Asia as well. Um, I think if I think back on the last few deals and this and of this nature I've been involved in, there's there's a real recurring theme of 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 things that can can be issues, and it goes a little bit Mia, to your point there on the term sheet um, uh, and and not wanting to focus on negative things in the term sheet. I think sometimes can can cause issues when you get to documents. So so how are you going to deal with an exit? How are you going to ultimately realize value from the joint venture um or, or or unwind it if it doesn't work out in the way that the parties want want to do typically that's a, not the sort of discussion people want to spend a huge amount of time on when they're talking about mous or term sheets mm -hmm. but it it's incredibly important when you get to the the documents and and to, to peter's point on alignment you know it can be particularly pronounced if for example one of the parties views it as a strategic collaboration and the other party views it as a commercial collaboration, for example, and the, the underlying rationale for doing the, 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 the transaction is different for the parties, so it can be very difficult to reconcile reconcile that. Um, another thing that tends to come up um, is uh, not quite valuation of assets that are being contributed, but what, what happens if um, those assets are not what, what was expected. So if a party is providing IP or data or, or some sort of services, you know, what if that doesn't work the way it was supposed to work? Um, you know, how do you deal with defaults? How do you deal with termination? Um, a number of these transactions might see um, a party providing IP or data data services and the other party providing cash. And if the IP doesn't work, you, you know, that's a clear mismatch in terms of contribution. Um, and that sort of thing can, can cause a, a lot of trouble as well when you get to the documents, so that's sort of cross default considerations. Um, so these tend to be things that are very, um, uh, or not very problematic, but they can be problematic in these sorts of transactions and that don't always apply in, in joint ventures of, of 
you know a traditional joint venture structure yeah that's actually a really good point jamie i think one of the the, the everyone's sort of and understandably everyone's focused on the upside because it's all about you know how do we kind of tap into innovation and drive uh, a lot of action and look at change in the ways we do business and how do we kind of align ourselves more particularly in in certain areas with um, startup emerging growth companies uh, all of which is incredibly valid uh, but the sad reality is you do have to keep an eye on, well, actually, look, that's all great. We're not trying to be the negative voice in the room, but you have to also think around, well, what happens if ultimately that doesn't eventuate? So it's sort of, and that's terribly hard in some cases to have that conversation because everyone's, as I said, focusing on the upside. It's all about the benefit. How do we kind of drive this forward? And we want to be main, making sure that we're also looking at, well, hang on, let's also just look at if it doesn't quite work out the way everyone is hoping it will, we're not, we're not the voices of doom. Uh, but if it doesn't quite work out that way, how do we ensure as well that that ultimately values of assets, values of sort of the IP, for example, are not necessarily inadvertently leaked through those transaction structures? Yeah, I think, I mean, what the kind of both of you have been saying is, is and what I'm hearing is kind of, um, you know, think about how things could go wrong. Obviously, nobody likes to do that, but but it's possible. And also don't forget that that although this may not be a kind of traditional equity investment, your due diligence is still, yep. you know, as important. Um, there's still value being contributed and exchanged in some way or another and and kind of understanding what that is, what it looks like, how parties are allocating value to it, it is actually, you know, something that does require a bit of attention and, and kind of, you know, a bit of traditional due diligence like we'd think of for a kind of classic um, equity transaction. Um, no, I think that's great. And, and I mean, I should say, um, you know, not to, to plug my own podcast on my podcast, but uh, we'll be doing a whole episode on intellectual property issues for this exact reason, because in this space, it is such a huge um, area and there are so many, you know, exciting and interesting, but also kind of challenging points that come up in relation to IP, um, you know, that that's different to kind of other traditional assets. Um, I, I so, think as you know, well because you, mentioned, yeah, because you mentioned before, Mia, that the reality is when you talk about IP as an effectively an intangible asset versus a mm -hmm. hard asset like a factory, uh, it, it does change the dimensions of particular transactions and people are not necessarily always focused on the downside risk of if they vest IP into a particular structure, what's the impact of that in terms of not only the fact that someone else might then pick that IP up and be able to run with it, but your ability to then sort of, you know, you've invested years of work into that and then all of a sudden that IP might potentially be gone and you have no right to then continue commercialization in a different area. Yes, completely. Um, and I think maybe just moving slightly, but kind of I think probably one of the other hot button points, kind of the, the other big asset classes that that we see as, as really kind of um, the focus for, for clients in this space is obviously around data. And, and, I, and I think we've all mentioned it here because it is one of those things that that um, is often the foundation of, of kind of collaboration arrangements that people are trying to seek access to data and I'd, I'd be really interested and I'm sure everyone would be to understand kind of anything you're seeing there and, and thoughts you've got around that. 
I mean, I ha again, happy to kick in Mia and then throw over to Jamie. Um, I mean, I think it, what we are seeing now um, is perhaps, and I know, you know, again, everyone spoke about data being the new oil, and now people are going, well, is it the new oil or is it the asbestos aspects? Um, if you don't look at it that way, you can just even more simplistically data as an asset versus data as a liability. Um, we didn't have those conversations probably, you know, five years ago where it was all about how do we make sure that you've got an ability for both parties to effectively leverage the, 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 the asset being data. Well, I think what we're seeing is essentially a emergence of a view around the challenging situation and the challenging position that presents itself when you look at data as an asset, uh, which is because you've got data as an asset, which is an asset, and you can do a lot with it. It also necessarily means, as we're seeing in many high profile situations throughout the globe, it's a target. Uh, and and you can put in place as much as you want levels of control around security on that particular asset. And that's clearly important as it is around, you know, due diligence around the processes appropriately to track the protection of data, et cetera. But you have to accept that the, if ultimately the, the, the value of a particular joint venture, strategic alliance, opportunity, whatever you want to call it, if it's ultimately around data and some parties got it and another party doesn't, you have to accept that, yeah, there's always going to be a risk because the value of that transaction is always going to be the subject of other third parties, malactors, you know, threat actors um, potentially looking at tapping into that as well. Uh, and that can, to be fair, uh, obviously, for, you know, jeopardise any form of joint venture, strategic alliance, commercial opportunity, because you can torpedo it very quickly if ultimately the information that everyone sees as the asset is actually turning out to be the liability because it's been tracked, been exposed, been exfiltrated, et cetera. So I think there's more work that's being done. I'm seeing a lot of our clients um, look very, very heavily, not only around the, the sort of the nature of the, the asset, i.e. the data asset, but actually post completion, how do we then look at protecting that asset if ultimately there's a transfer of those that, that sort of data into a different vehicle? Uh, and I think we're just going to continue to see this evolving uh, as we're sort of seeing already. I think that's all exactly spot on, Peter. The one thing I would add to it is um, it's not a legal point per se, but it is a key point on these transactions, which is the sort of cultural fit between the parties. You know, if on the one hand you've got a heavily regulated financial institution trying to do something with a fast and loose founder who's not got a very strong compliance posture, you know, it doesn't take a genius to, to suspect that won't work out very well. Um, so I think from the, 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 the company, the growth company's perspective, you know, being able to show that it that it takes these things seriously, that it adopts a serious approach to these things is essential in terms of um, uh, attracting the sort of 
institutional investors and partners that they might need to 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 realize the the potential in their their their, their platforms um, and that cultural piece you know it's, it's it's hard to quantify but you can you can see when it's not going to work is my experience <laughs> Yeah, and I think I mean probably we should we should say with this kind of focus on the issues that we're seeing, we're probably coming across as as you know perhaps not um, talking up the success stories, and obviously they are out there. And I, and I think the thing that we would say is it's just about finding people that are speaking the right language, you know, um, and not literally, obviously, because we, we we do love some. Um, uh, cross-jurisdictional collaboration but you know people who you've got a good fit with people who uh, when you sit down and get into some of that detail early on um, you're aligned or, mm. or there's no kind of great allergic reactions and I think um, you know that really is the the kind of secret to success um, here. I mean, I think, now I'm I think just, that's great. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry I was going to say very quickly I think that's absolutely valid I mean you know in spite of the lawyer's tendency to try and find negativity in everything the reality is um, I can think of in what two decades of doing this, there's probably been three deals that I can think of that haven't been able to find a way forward. You can find a way forward, but it's important, I think, to just realize the different perspectives that entities are bringing to the transaction uh, and, and to appreciate that that is actually ultimately uh, what you have to try and manage. And I think this is exactly kind of why we wanted to cover this topic, because sometimes it's people come to a table and go, let's go all in on an incorporated joint venture and, you know, full equity alignment and realise that that's maybe not where they're at yet in terms of their relationship. And, you know, let's start a little more softly, softly and, and do some collaboration pieces and, and some contracting um, while we, you know, get a feel for each other and, and, and figure out if we're going to progress to the next step. Um, so I think, you know, it is kind of one of the, we, I think, talked early on about the, the great advantages of the flexibility of of kind of collaboration arrangements and, and really part of it is that, that it allows you, and I think, Peter, you said it earlier, early on, that the kind of try before you buy, um, explore different options, um, be able to be kind of nimble and flexible, which, which really is appreciated in this space. Um, so maybe just before I let you both go, um, and I've, I've hopefully warned you um, of this, but but if not, you've got um, five seconds to think, which is we'd love to ask our guests what's one thing that is exciting them in tech at the moment. Um, it could be a book, a podcast, a product launch, anything that kind of is, is keeping you interested. I'd love um, to hear your thoughts. Yeah, let, let me jump in. I mean, I, as much as there are issues associated with it, I am thoroughly invested in AI and the, the genuine ability of AI to drive positive experiences for individuals. Now, yes, I appreciate there's a lot of slip sometimes between cup and lip when it comes to AI, but if you can see, and we've already seen the, the power of AI to drive positive outcomes for individuals, if we can harness that in a way that doesn't discriminate, that leads to highly personalised outcomes for individuals, that is absolutely what tech should be about. Uh, it should be about making every individual better, not because I'm in a category of people I'm a, you know, it should be about driving that upside. So I'm 
I'm backing in AI. I think there is there will absolutely be speed humps, but if you take those outside, the ability of AI to assist entities to drive decision making in a whole range of different areas is just absolutely a no-brainer. Excellent. Even if they are all going to replace um, us lawyers. <laughs> Well, you know what? You know, you, you know what they say, Mia? You just got to kind of change with the times. So. <laughs> yes, no, no, no. I, I'm also excited. And Jamie, how about you? Uh, AI is obviously very exciting. Um, VR gaming is quite exciting. I'm quite excited yep. about that, uh, to be honest. Um, but I suppose on a, a, a sort of a, something that's more beneficial for society than gaming, I think 5G could be really interesting. Um, you know, and the, the, what could happen with 5G and sort of digitalization of cities and how they might transform in the coming decade or, or two. I think that's really interesting and really exciting and and definitely something I look forward to, to seeing how that plays out. Excellent. Well, I think you guys have uh, both aimed pretty high with some big picture, um, exciting topics there. So I think lots to watch this space. Um, okay, so thank you both for this. I have absolutely loved this discussion and I think it's been really valuable and useful. Thank you very much, Mia. Thanks, Jamie, as always, and look forward to catching up again soon. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Thanks Jamie. Thanks, Mia. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud, and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com, for more insights relevant to your business.